There's always forgiveness in Christ, and you may come head uh, bump right into the reality that maybe your divorce wasn't in accordance with what the Scriptures teach. But it is that nonetheless, and Christ forgives sin. This sin, all sin, and you must hold on to that. And you look to Him as we work our way through what is difficult at times. But one, the Savior Himself here in the Sermon on the Mount was compelled to speak to. That itself should tell us the importance of the matter, for He did not speak to every matter that we might like Him to speak to in the world, but the Word of God is sufficient for all matters. But He does highlight here in these two verses in Matthew chapter 5, He does highlight this subject, although he spends very little time elaborating. He probably leaves some of you with more questions than answers. But he has given these words to us. He doesn't say everything there is to say. That's precisely why I read from 1 Corinthians 7 first, to let you know that there's more to say. But today we're only going to deal with what Jesus says. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take up what Paul says. They are not odds with each other. It's an amplification of the one to the other. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus gives us one of the grounds by which a divorce is, note, permissible, not commanded. He gives it here as a corrective to the abuses that were circulating in the first century. Frankly, he gets it to the abuses that are circulating in the 21st century. But he gives it here because he, again, as he did in Mark chapter 10, and as the entirety of the Word of God plainly tells us, God loves marriage. But he also understands that we, too, we are sinful people. Sometimes... We do something that would destroy the sanctity of that God-ordained gift called marriage. And so I want to show you this morning that the Savior allows divorce for only one reason. for The sin of sexual immorality. I want to show you that the Savior, and this is what Jesus teaches... We'll get to Paul's words next week. But I want to show you that the Savior here in these two verses allows divorce for only one reason, and that is the sin of sexual immorality. Two points as we consider these two verses. We're going to see the Old Testament regulation or law. Jesus appeals to it. Right there in the very beginning of the words when he says it was also said. And of course, now what is he talking about? We're going to look at that. I am not going to do a deep dive exegesis of Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to say enough, I think, to help you understand why Jesus uses this and then expands and gives to us the New Testament correction, for lack of a better word, in the second point. The Old Testament regulation, driven right out of Deuteronomy 24, and then the New Testament correction, of which we will then examine 
in more detail the very words that Christ gives here in this sermon that he preached. Let's first consider the Old Testament regulation. It is obvious, of course, that Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. He doesn't say that, but he is talking to a crowd of people that would know that. They know the Mosaic Code. They know the laws and regulations that govern their existence as a society. Certainly the Pharisees are present. They would know this as well. Remember these Pharisees, the ones that sought to get around the rules, to create loopholes in the, in the, in the issues that they might then do what they really want to do anyway. And so Jesus says to the crowd there, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So we have to back up, of course, to Deuteronomy 24, and you might as well go ahead and turn there. I'm going to spend just a few minutes in this passage. Again, not doing a deep dive exegesis through these words. It's very complex in many different ways, and many different questions are undoubtedly going to come from uh, from you as you think through these things. Um, but with that said, it's important that we're at least in front of the passage that I'm going to deal with. Deuteronomy 24, I'm going to just read the first four verses. These are the words that Jesus is appealing to. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, she, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You should not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The importance of this passage, as Jesus refers to it, is first that this text is the most often cited text in the New Testament discussions of the issue. Let me give you some examples. All of them rooted right in the Gospels. Paul doesn't appeal to it, but Jesus does. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31, this is where we are. But also again in Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, and the parallel passage as we saw last week in Mark chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. But what we must also remember and note that even in the entire sermon from last week and it's showing to you the importance of marriage, its beauty and its glory and God's true design for marriage, God never ever commands divorce. Deuteronomy 24 doesn't command divorce. Jesus doesn't command divorce. And it's not the point. The command was always rooted in that which it was given by God in Genesis chapter 2, that what, man, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. With that firmly fixed in our mind, we approach these words that are both given to us in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, as well as that which is given in Deuteronomy 24. And so what is Deuteronomy 24? Well, I'm thankful to John Murray. And if you don't know John Murray... I don't mean like face-to-face, -face, of course. He's a theologian. At least one of you in this room shares the same opinion I share about his treatment of things. Brilliant. He's a way of explaining things that is very helpful. And I wish he were up here preaching this right now and not me. It would probably be far more beneficial, be that as it may. 
thankful to his exposition, his words in this area. The subject of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. First, he says it cannot be the subject of adultery. It's not mentioned. It's not mentioned in the Hebrew. It's not mentioned in its cognates. It's just mentioned and it's given as an act of indecency. We don't exactly know what that means. But according to John Murray, the issue is not adultery. We also note that when it comes to the issue of divorce in the Old Testament, the issue of adultery is that death was required. If, in fact, a woman was unfaithful, then why then is God not commanding death here in Deuteronomy 24? But that's not what happens. Hence, he arrives at the conclusion, and I share that opinion, that this is not an adulterous act. This is some other thing. The Pentateuch prescribes death for adultery, not a mere sending away. We note that in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, as well as in the same canonical book, the final book of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22. So reason then determines the interpretation. If in fact the divorce mentioned in Deuteronomy 24 is one of illicit adultery, then why is it that the command given is in death. Why is it something else? Again, you might be thinking, well, then tell us what the act is. I can't. I don't know. Maybe it's a suspicion of adultery. But again, Murray would argue, and as I'm arguing as well, again, I don't use commentators just because they're there, right? If I don't agree with them, I wouldn't be using them. What about a suspicion of adultery? Maybe the husband is jealous. Maybe he thinks his wife is cheating on him. Again, no reference to the words of Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 20, uh, 31, which are the tests for adultery given in the Mosaic law. Why not is that there? Not mentioned. Not even hinted at in any way. There are charges regarding uncleanness. If a newly wedded wife is charged with sexual promiscuity, that is, she is not a virgin, there are laws to follow. Those show up in Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 to 21. If disproven, then the man may not put her away. If proven, again, she is to be stoned. I know some of you might be thinking, I'm really glad I don't live in the, under the Old Testament economy and these capital crimes and punishments that show up. I have a different theory on that into the New Testament church. Ask me later, I'll tell you what I think it is. The death penalty of the Old Testament, I think I'm going to tell you now, I guess. The death penalty of the Old Testament is the, the, the New Testament version of excommunication. Fourth, again, all Murray Cases regarding virgins betrothed who engage in intercourse with another man, death for both, Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. You see what he's doing here? He's eliminating what could be the reasons for this action in Deuteronomy 24. Fifth, cases regarding a virgin betrothed who was forced to have intercourse, the man is put to death. Forced to. There's another word for that. We know what that word is. 
Deuteronomy 22, 25, and 27. Cases of men who have sexual relations with a virgin not betrothed, he must marry her. Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. You, lead, you, you, you place all of these items on top of each other, and then you go back and you look at Deuteronomy 24, and you don't see any of these things given. You only see this really in-out subject of if a man desires to put away his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. And then there's these various aspects that relate to it. So what is the object and the purpose of this part of the Mosaic law then? According to Murray, it is to control divorce. It is to control the propensity of the human heart to grow weary with their spouse for whatever reason and just put them away for any reason. You remember the sermon from last week, and this was the question of the Pharisees. Is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? Is it okay to do that? Uh, Where were they getting that idea from? From a perverted understanding of God's intention for marriage. It was designed to control divorce. It was already a reality in the life of God's covenant people. It was due. Why? Why was divorce even there in the first place? It was due to the hardness of their heart, the hardness of the heart of man. This is what Jesus teaches us in Mark chapter 10. But more to the point of Deuteronomy 24, and this is the point. And I recognize that I'm doing something I don't normally do from the pulpit, and that is I'm offering, in some sense, my understanding, studied opinion of the intention of this passage. You may have a different view, and that's fine. But I am convinced that the purpose of Deuteronomy 24 rooted in the hardness of man's heart and the propensity to go against God's law and to do what God has to do go against what God has commanded his best design for marriage the purpose of this was because God in his grace and his mercy wanted to safeguard the lives of the woman the women in the camp You have to understand the the societal influence that existed in that day. It's much different than what we see in our westernized culture. Women then were very dependent upon the men for lots of things. And to simply kick the wife out of the house because you didn't like her very much anymore, because you had some reason for doing it, would leave her in a situation of impoverishment. No protection, no care. And so you must give her this certificate that she was then free, as the text tells us in the passage, she is free then therefore to marry another man that she might have that protection and care afforded her. But, but, notice also, if you choose to do this, guess what? You can't take her back. No Indian giving And so God, in his concern for both the hardness of men's heart and the desire to safeguard the care for the women in the camp, he permits this action. The bill of divorce was given so there was no confusion on the part of the society. That is to say, did she commit adultery? You see... Had the man set the woman aside for that reason, then going back to the arguments that I've already made, she would have to be stoned. 
And that certificate preserves her life. It says it's not the reason. She is not being put out because of that. It's something else. And that safeguards her well-being to ultimately regulate an otherwise chaotic situation, both for the women as well as the children that may have come from that union. Again, due to the hardness of men's hearts, to to, to violate the true intentions of everything God sets down, and let's face it, we're all like that. God institutes, He permits this with specific reasons and directions that He might bring peace from chaos and to safeguard the woman. It is permissive, but it is not commanded. The man may find that he's got good reason aside from adultery. That might be a good reason, but then there's a different kind of response to it, right? He may find that he has good reason due to the hardness of his heart, but God permits it. He does not command it. It is permissive in nature, and divorce was not required in those circumstances. It was merely permitted. So let me see if I can summarize for fear that I've lost half of you already. Again, I said, and I think I was honest about this, it's complicated, The major principles are such, limited divorce to certain cases, natural, moral, or physical defect. It was required a certain action, a bill of divorcement. Why? That it might say it wasn't because of this which would require death, it was for some other reason. And there's a certain reason, a protection for the woman. It cannot be adultery, as has already been demonstrated, a certain consequence. They're not able to remarry. The major focus, of course, is that the divorce was not required. The intention of marriage was one man, one woman for life, that they would be one flesh. This is a critical aspect, as we will see when we turn to the Savior's corrective statement given here in this context in Matthew chapter 5. In other words, Jesus is not changing the law. He is amplifying it and being more specific to it as he seeks to correct the abuses of it that were occurring within two different schools of thought that I mentioned last week, the school of Shammai, which was mostly conservative, that held to the very words that Jesus here is arguing, that divorce is only permissible under the sin of sexual immorality. And then you had that school of Hillel, which was far more liberal, kind of like the school of our Western culture, which says you can get divorced because the person parted their hair funny. Or squeeze the toothpaste in the middle, I had to say that one, right? (coughs) So Jesus moves to the correction. You've heard it said. You've heard the words. You know what they say in Deuteronomy 24. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Fine, fine and good. Got it. But he says, I say to you, That everyone, notice the change in the terms. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, 
makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a general statement, of course. Jesus is not going to contradict the laws given by Moses. He can't do that. Just recently in Matthew, the same chapter, in verses 17 through 20, he has made it quite clear that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not contradicting the law. He is showing plainly that their arguments and their context are not germane to the issue of Deuteronomy 24. So what does he say? I say to you, Jesus as the divine logos is dealing with the perversions and distortions. This is a quote. He's dealing with the perversions and distortions to which the Old Testament law has been subjected which is what we are tend to do to every law that God gives. I forgot how many different various sundry laws there were for the Sabbath day. It's interesting, as I was watching the news this week, probably too much so, but be that as it may, it was pretty much on from Monday to, yeah. Um, It was interesting to me how the Jews and their practice of the Sabbath would turn off their phones Maybe some of you should just do that anyway. But um, anyway, you know, these various man-made sundry laws attached to, he's correcting the abuses. He's dealing with the true heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that divorce is serious. Why is it serious? Well, it's serious enough for Jesus to bring it up here. It's serious because of that which we saw last week, an act that breaks the one-flesh relationship that we noted from Genesis 2.24 as well as Mark chapter 10 and verse 9. God never commands divorce. What's been brought together by God should never be separated. It's an act of God. It's not an act of the state of Indiana or any other state. Thus, the whole matter itself is serious. Therefore, it requires a serious break or breach of the covenant that was established between husband and wife in order to separate it. And I can't think of a more serious breach than the one that Jesus highlights here. Paul's going to get to the second one next week. Well, he's already got to it, but we'll get to it next week. We'll deal with that. This one's not that hard. This one is relatively simple to understand, basically. The second one's far more difficult. I'll tell you that now. Such willful desertion. Complicated. This one, not so much. Jesus gives an exception here. He knows the true heart of his father, that no man should separate from their wife, what, no wife should separate from her husband. God's put you together. You should stay together. Brothers and sisters, if you're married, you should stay together. 
You should fight tooth and nail for your marriage, even if this particular matter applies to you. Because Jesus doesn't command it. He simply says it's permissible. That said, you should never use that word. Some of you, husbands and wives, I suspect you've had arguments. Most marriages have them from time to time. Some of them are loud. Some of them are not so loud. Whatever it is, I'll use that word. In other words, you don't go into your marriage with an out clause always in the back of your head. Well, if things don't work out too well, I can just go ahead and get out of it. Jesus says, no, you can't. Then he says, I understand the hardness of men's hearts. And here's the exception. The exception is plainly stated in the verse, sexual immorality is expressly set forth as the only legitimate ground for putting away one's wife or wife her husband. It's contrary to the teaching of the rabbinical law and the distortion of the Pharisees' interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. The term that Jesus uses here is that term that we've already seen from our exposition, our study of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. That's term for immorality. The term of porneia, that's the word. It's the word we get pornography from in our English. It's an overarching term. It's a broad term. It it covers all aspects of, of, of sexual promiscuity. The Greek term refers to sexual sins committed by one within the marriage relationship. Pornea is the umbrella term that covers all sexual sins within the scope of the Bible. Now, how is it used in the Bible? Well, first, it's used figuratively, often. Several prophetic passages that use the analogy of pornea to picture Israel's marital unfaithfulness to God. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't blunder when he chose this term. We've noted that already, haven't we? Those of you who are here in the evening worship service as we work our way through Hosea, you've already seen that this is the prime sin of how are they described as unfaith- the unfaithful bride of Jehovah. Why are they unfaithful? Because of idolatry. That's the term, porneia. Unfaithfulness to God. Literally, it's used to cover all sorts of aspects, including to, but not limited to, the sins of homosexuality, incest, bestiality, lesbianism, and adultery. We noted that from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. A man who had his father's wife, incest. The term there is porneia. The term here is porneia. This is the word that Jesus uses. This is the word he employs. What does that mean for us? I'm coming to that. But it also includes other matters, and I want to be very careful here because I, well, I just do. What do we do when a husband or a wife is ensnared in the sins of pornography? Would that fall under the category of porneia? The exception clauses, Jesus gives it here. I'm convinced it does. What about other matters related to, well, I'll just skip that one just for the sake of the audience. Are these sins covered under the exception clause? They may be covered. 
if and only if they serve to destroy the one flesh relationship of husband and wife. That is the issue. Because nothing separates the one flesh relationship that exists between husband and wife like the sin of sexual immorality. I can't think of another sin that does. Paul says there isn't one. Jesus says there isn't because there isn't. This one does violence against the one flesh relationship that exists. And if those other matters, such as pornography and the one I did not mention, and if you really want to know, you can ask me later. If it serves to destroy the one flesh relationship of the husband and wife, then that may be then grounds for a legitimate biblical divorce between the husband and the wife. Notice I said maybe, grounds. I didn't say you have to. Jesus gives then, after the exposition, which is, of course, very brief, a warning. Husbands and wives are not to divorce their wives for any other uh, wives. Husbands are not to divorce their wives, and wives are not to divorce their husbands for any other reason than this sin. Might be nice if it was more than that, and he spelled it out more in more detail. He does not. Notice what he says. The man makes her commit adultery. If this divorce happens, other than for the sin of sexual immorality, the man makes her commit adultery. The man does not commit adultery. The sin is that he, that he becomes implicated in the wrong of adultery on the part of the dismissed wife or vice versa. Uh, vice versa. That is to say that, putting it plainly and as gently as I know how, in all of my Yankee ways, if your divorce is for anything other than sexual immorality and one of the parties remarried, that is adultery. It's that simple. Not easy to hear, I recognize. Now, the solution to that, friends, is not to get a second divorce so you can fix the problem of the first one. No. Two wrongs don't make a right. We've all heard that before. But this is what Jesus says. The adultery is not the divorce itself. The adultery occurs if one is divorced for any other reason other than the one the Savior offers. Adultery then shows up. The one who marries a spouse who is unjustly divorced also commits adultery. Unjustly divorced. Unbiblically divorced. That is to say, not divorced for the reasons of sexual immorality or such willful desertion. Any divorce that is the result of any other reason other than the one established here requires that both parties remain unmarried. Why? Because they are still one flesh, and reconciliation, as we will see in Paul's letter in chapter 7, reconciliation is still the goal. Well, it's been 20 years. Doesn't matter. It's been 30 years. Doesn't matter. Reconciliation is still the goal. And it ought to be the goal. Divorce should be hard, not easy. What do we say about the state that says, okay, it's fine for you to get a divorce. You're a Christian. You're a God-fearing people. 
You might be in this room. Maybe you're contemplating it. I hope you're not. If you are, you need to come see me. I'm getting to that in a minute. Well, the state says it's okay. However, when do we allow the state to mandate what the Word of God so plainly says? I don't... I'm interested in what the state says. I'm interested in what Christ says. What does His Word say? He says, unless it's for reasons of sexual immorality, you should stay married. But you don't understand my husband. No, I probably don't. I don't have to live with him. You don't understand my wife. Again, I probably don't. I don't have to live with her. I do know this. If there's no sexual immorality, you stay married. Maybe you need counseling. Maybe you need help. Maybe you need a lot of other things. You stay married. But what do we do in situations that we read these words and we think, well, this doesn't apply to me, but you, Pastor, you just don't understand my marriage. It's a train wreck. You don't understand what I'm putting up with. What do you do? I want to be faithful to Christ. I want to do what He has told me. But I live in abject misery day after day. My marriage isn't what I thought it would be. What do you do? Again, this is outside the text. This is more pastoral counsel than any other thing. But it's not that it's not borrowed from something. Indeed, it's taken right from our confession. That chapter 24, which is very pastoral that we haven't got to yet in Sunday school, but is very pastoral speaking in the marriage. And that final paragraph in that chapter is extremely beneficial, helpful in situations such as this. Maybe you think you have grounds. That you're fulfilling that which Jesus here has plainly stated. What should husbands and wives do Well, they are to seek the help before they do anything else. And I cannot stress this enough. I say this as your pastor. I say this as one who has seen people's marriages destroyed for lack of wisdom and guidance. I've seen this in my own family. I urge you to recognize that when you're in a situation such as this and you may think you have grounds or you may be in a marriage that's just stressful, it's beyond ridiculous, you are too close to the matter to be objective. You are likely to fulfill your own prophecy to get out of it. You're to seek the help of the pastor and elders in the church before moving even to this stage. You should not be left to yourself to make these determinations. Remember, marriage is an institution of God. And that means it comes under the rubric of the authority of the church. It's not a sacrament of the church, of course. I haven't gone to Rome. Don't panic. But it's still an institution of God. And therefore, it is covered under that shepherding care of faithful pastors and elders in the church. Why? Because, you know, in the church, even in the church, marital difficulties occur. Now, I've seen them, and they break my heart. What do you do? 
Well, I can't divorce my husband because it's not this. So I guess I'm just stuck with this miserable marriage. No, no. Sometimes the Lord calls us to difficult marriages. Doesn't mean you got to stay that way. There's help within the unity of the church, within the faithfulness of the church, within the elders that have been ordained to help you in these matters. A pastor who cares enough to say, let's talk about this, let's work through these things. Because God wants your marriage to be beautiful and glorious as it is between Jesus and the church, which is beautiful and glorious. Jesus isn't up in heaven considering ways in which he might get rid of us. The word has never come out of his mouth. Marital difficulties will occur. And sometimes divorce occurs. Our confession tells us that divorce is only permittable as such for adultery, or as we will see next week, such willful desertion as cannot be remedied by the church. It also adds, and civil magistrate. Don't worry, I'll cover that next week. What does that mean? Remedied by the church. In what way? By the faithful counsel and pastoral care and guidance of those who are in those situations, whether they think they have grounds biblically to divorce or not. You seek the wisdom of your God-given elders. You should not, friends, and those of you who are married in this room right now, I'm going to say this again as gently as I know how. Married couples should not leave it to their own wills in these matters. You may think you have grounds. You may think that you have a biblical right to it. But you should not be left to your own wills in these matters, but seek the counsel and help of the church to merely divorce without involving the church. And when I say the church, I mean the elders of the church, the pastor of the church, to involve them in the situation is lacking in great discernment. Maybe your marriage can be saved. Yeah, but they committed adultery. Maybe your marriage can be saved. Maybe it can be rescued. Oh, that's terrible. I, I, I don't even like going home. My wife, the, the dinner's never ready. The, the, the clothes are always a mess all over the house, whatever. Maybe your marriage can be saved. One of the things I tell married couples as I've counseled them, and I've had occasion to do this more than once, is first week I say to them, my goal, regardless of the reason why you're in front of me, it may be because there's adultery, it may be because of such sexual immorality, it may be because of such willful desertion, whatever the case may be, my goal, my goal, my desire, my heart's desire is that we follow the command of God and we don't separate. But I understand that it may not be possible. Why? Because sexual immorality is such a, such, does such violence to the covenant vow in which trust has been eroded so badly that they can't live together anymore. But friends, it doesn't mean you have to. You get the wisdom of your elders and you get the wisdom of your pastor in these matters before you do anything that is terminal. Because once you do it, it's done. 
And frankly, I'll even go a little bit further. Again, being as gentle as I can, you should never divorce in the church without your elders telling you that you have a biblical, warranted, permissible ability. Why, you might ask? Because that saves and safeguards your conscience for the future. It gives you the permission under the authority of Christ as the good shepherd of the church to remarry if you're the innocent party. You should never do it unless the elders say you have a biblical warranted right to do it. But what usually happens? They come to church one Sunday and then I find out they're divorced. Well, now that's never happened to me and I'm thankful for that and I hope it never does, but we ought not do it that way. So, in summary, a warning. Husbands and wives will argue at times, disagreement will come, but the subject of divorce should never enter the discussion. It is only an option if adultery or such willful desertion, sexual immorality has occurred. An option, not a necessity. So a warning then followed with some counsel. If a husband or wife suspects illicit adultery in the life of their spouse, they should confront him or her. You're thinking, yeah, right. I know some of you aren't confrontational. I know that's going to be hard. That's why God's giving you elders. Innuendo and suspicion is not enough to satisfy the biblical requirements. The act itself is the qualifier. Seek help. This is what the church is here to do. It's usually very messy. Biblically qualified elders and pastors are given to you by God to help you through this matter. Maybe you're having marital problems right now, and you think you've got this. You might. I pray for your marriages. I hope you do. But you have been given a man to help you. Fourth, remember, no matter the circumstance, divorce is never commanded. In the case of adultery, it is allowed, but it is not commanded. There are far better options, and the goal should always be reconciliation. Think about God and His people. How many times do they give Him reason to divorce them? Come on Sunday nights, and you'll hear more about that. Fifth and finally, flee. So warning, counsel, seek, remember, flee. Again, for those of you who have been divorced, maybe you think, well, that, this doesn't describe my divorce. And maybe it doesn't. Remember that it is not the unpardonable sin. I keep saying that. I'm going to keep saying that until we get through this. God will and He does forgive. Maybe you've never done business with the Lord on this matter. Maybe you never sought his face and said, you know, my divorce wasn't biblically. I've been convicted by this, Father. Please forgive me for the sin that I've committed. I can't change it now, but, you know, you're good and gracious, and you forgive sin, and that's what you need to do. You know what? He'll forgive you. No strings attached. Forgiveness. 
There may be consequences to the divorce. Every divorce has consequences. Maybe the consequences such that you can't marry again because you are the guilty party. I have a friend. I've told you this story before, but I, I had a friend who, well, sad story. He can never remarry. Not biblically. He knows that. Ask him how he feels. He grieves it. There's consequences. But even then, brothers and sisters, you're not cast off. God doesn't say, okay, that's it. I'm booting you out of the family room. God's for you. He wants you to hear the soothing comfort that comes from the gospel, even in this very emotionally laden subject. So hear it. For those of you who are there, for those of you who are not, you're married. God's blessing your marriage and you give praise to Him. You pray and ask and watch and pray lest you enter into temptation that you might not sin in such a way to violate the one flesh relationship that God has given to you as a glorious gift. You're struggling, maybe. Lay hold of the means that God has given. Seek them. Pray that the enemy of your soul will not destroy or seek to destroy that glorious gift that God has given to men and women, that gift of marriage. That gift that pictures, doesn't it? That glorious gift of Christ and His people. You're wedded to Him. There's no better marriage anywhere. Never will be. And you know what's nice? He'll never divorce you either. He'll love you to the end. Even in spite of all of our messiness, He does anyway. So as we think through and work through these complicated subjects, remember to trust the Lord in your marriage. Not yourself. You trust Him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and though it's so hard sometimes to deal with these subjects, you've given them to us because we are prone to failure in these areas. But there is always the gospel. May we hear it as married people today. May we hear it as those who've been divorced, as single people. May we see your true design. May we rest our marriages upon the grace of God May we look to you for forgiveness in those other times and other areas. May you help us. We are weak and we are miserable often. But you have never divorced us. You have never turned aside from us. And so may we always lean upon you for Christ's sake. Amen.